Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. A former typhoon pilot tells us what it's like to fly the jet in the heat of battle. You're flying the aeroplane, you're talking on the radio, you're working through the weapon system, you're, you're slewing the camera pod, you're keeping an eye on your fuel. You're just working at 100% really to make sure that it, it all happens professionally. Why is Bosnia in crisis again and can the country survive? If this happened practically, it would mean unraveling of Bosnia's central government and potentially it could mean an armed conflict. And the British flight, which wasn't warned, it was landing in the middle of an Iraqi invasion. But who were the mystery men on board? This sort of group of, I don't know, about eight young men, and they, they reminded me of a friend of mine who used to be the head of security at the Hippodrome in London. So what is it like to fly an ARIA fighter jet on combat operations over the Middle East? To look down on Islamists fighting Iraqi government forces from high in the sky and make life or death actions that should help your allies and harm their enemies? Retired Wing Commander Mike Sutton flew a typhoon and led the RAF's one squadron on Operation Shader in 2015. He shared his experience of those combat sorties in a new memoir. With a flick of the wrist, I overbanked the typhoon onto the line of attack. Almost inverted, the jet spun effortlessly. I pulled the nose down through the horizon, settling into a 30-degree dive, bang on the heading and rolled the wings to level. The typhoon would be on them from three miles away in less than 30 seconds. Dragon cleared live. My heart felt like it was going to burst through my flying suit. Sweat stung my eyes. Do not screw this up. Well, that's just a short excerpt from Mike Sutton's book, Typhoon. He's been telling me more about the experience of flying that jet. It's like nothing else being in a typhoon. It's a hugely powerful and agile aircraft. Um, somewhere between a Formula One car and a rocket ship, I'd say. When you accelerate down the runway, you get up to about 160 miles an hour. And then at that speed, you then turn it on its tail and point at the stars. So it's a hugely manoeuvrable, hugely powerful jet, and it was great fun to fly. And what's it like sitting in the cockpit? It's quite cramped, actually, in the cockpit. You're, it's a single-seat aeroplane, so there's no navigator. You're in there by yourself, and you're kind of parceled in. You're wearing a lot of equipment. So you've got a flying suit on. Uh, you've probably got an immersion suit if there's a risk that you might uh, eject into water. Then you've got a G-suit as well, which will clamp tightly around your legs and your chest every time you pull G to keep your blood pressure high. Uh, you've also got a flying helmet on and you might also be wearing a set of night vision goggles as well that sit sort of forward of your vision and weigh a, a kilogram or so. So it's a bit like balancing some sort of, you know, bag of sugar on your a baseball cap. When you pull G, then it, it puts a lot of pressure onto your body. You, you, you essentially feel a lot heavier. So to put it into some sort of context that uh, if you then pull 9G, your head is now weighing 63 kilograms. And specifically with the Typhoon, how much weaponry are you carrying? The aircraft would normally carry two external fuel tanks, uh, a lightning pod, which is a, a designation pod with a laser in it and a camera. So in the cockpit, you can get a, a camera feed of what you're looking at on the ground. You can point that thing around and move it around. Uh, and then in terms of weapons, you've got a loaded cannon uh, with 27 millimeter shells, um, four uh, paveway precision um, weapons and eyes out there, which are GPS or laser guided bombs, and also radar guided missiles and heat seeking missiles. 
Mm. You write in your book about those bombing missions against ISIS on Operation Shader. How do you know where to go and who is on the ground? The missions were really about supporting the soldiers and the troops on the ground, particularly when they got into trouble, uh, they'd call in air support. Where you would go would completely vary. Every day was very different. And you'd sit on the runway, often at night, surrounded by thunderstorms, knowing that you had about eight hours in the cockpit ahead, somewhere over Iraq and Syria, but you didn't really know where you were going to be going. Uh, so you'd check in, you'd cross the border, you'd fill up with fuel from an air-to-air refueler, and then you'd check in with a command and control uh, aircraft that was up in the sky, and they would tell you where you were needed. And then you'd just hustle over there as quickly as you could uh, and talk to the JTACs, who are the specialist soldiers uh, on the ground who, who are trained at controlling um, airstrikes. And then you would support the task as you needed to at the time. How clearly could you see those you were targeting when you were targeting people? Pretty clearly. The camera is very good. You can zoom it in. It works at day and night. And one of the first things we did when we got on station was to try and find, it sounds silly, but you've got to try and find the target. And you've also got to establish where all the friendlies are. And that was the most important thing to make sure that you weren't going to have any impact on friendly troops. Mm. So you'd find what you're looking at on the camera. You could data link that image uh, to the guys on the ground. And between you, you could have a, a quick conversation to make sure that you were talking about precisely the right thing before you thought about doing anything sort of kinetic. And when you're going to bomb a target, can you just talk us through the process? What, what do you do? Yeah, it's a very involved process. The first thing that needs to happen is uh, the rules of engagement need to be established. It, you know, is this a necessary target? So you do that, you talk about the target, you did a thing called a nine-line brief where the JTAC would go through all the pertinent information that you needed for that particular attack. And then you'd look at uh, the best weapon for the strike and, and how you're going to go about doing that, minimising collateral damage and absolutely making sure that there was going to be no um, harm to friendlies. When you got the clearance to attack, it was just a case of getting on with it as quickly and as professionally as possible. And uh, your mindset is just completely immersed in the cockpit. You're flying the aeroplane, you're talking on the radio, you're working through the weapon system, you're, you're slewing the camera pod, you're keeping an eye on your fuel. So you're, you're just working at 100% really to make sure that it, it all happens professionally and as quickly in, uh, as possible. And who gives the clearance? Who makes the final decision? The final decision is, is normally made by the JTAC. And so he'll give you the clearance to strike and on receipt of that clearance, then you can go ahead. And what goes through your head during that process? I'd say a, a huge range of, um, of, of complex emotions go through your head. You're, you're very aware of the risk. There are surface-to-air missiles around. So your, your wingman normally uh, is looking out beneath the aircraft to make sure that you're sort of defending yourselves against that risk. Uh, so that's, that's one of the things you're thinking about. I think your overriding emotion, though, is that you just want to get this done as quickly and as professionally as, can, as you can. Because normally we were called in to drop weapons when there was a clear and, and huge risk to, to friendlies. And if we didn't get uh, the weapons down quickly, then there was an immediate risk of, of loss of life from friendly troops. Mm. You also, on just one occasion, used the Typhoon's gun against ISIS targets, the first and only time a Typhoon gun has been used in action. Can you just talk us through that? How was it? Yeah, that was fairly unusual. And it had been a particularly uh, challenging and long sortie. And then we were called down to a, a huge firefight near Ramadi where there were uh, an enormous amount of uh, enemy troops firing RPGs and, uh, and weapons at the friendly troops. And so this huge battle was going on beneath. 
uh, it was the JTAC's decision. He just said that there was a target. They were pinning down some uh, friendly soldiers and they requested the gun. And so got visual with the target and then from height rolled uh, the aircraft down, accelerated so that the whole thing would happen quite quickly, tried to come out of the sun and then fired a, a, a burst with the 27 mil onto that uh, target and then recovered the aircraft quickly and climbed back up to height again and, and got the camera back pointing on the, on the ground. How risky was it though? Because you have to get quite low, don't you? Yeah, you do get quite low and you're certainly at the risk of small arms and um, infrared surface-to-air missiles at that height. So I was pretty aware of all that. Uh, also, having been above that bit of sky for about 40 minutes or an hour before, I was very aware that they might think we're up there. And going down the hill, um, it was going pretty fast, almost about 500 knots, but getting pretty low as well, right right on top. So it had been very clearly visible. I'm sure they probably took a few pot shots, but luckily nothing hit the aircraft. It must have gone through your mind uh, on many occasions, what happens if you have to eject into enemy territory? Were you frightened? I think that uh, the risk of ejection is something that everyone considers uh, in slow time and, and tries to make peace with. We're trained, uh, all the fast jet pilots are trained in escape and evasion and trained in some survival techniques. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it, it was a huge risk, particularly back in 2015 when ISIS had controlled nearly the entire region. Yeah, because the barbarity of ISIS takes things into a whole new domain. Yeah, and it, it was very much something that you would try not to dwell on. You had some procedures for if you had to eject, and you just tried to put it to the back of your mind and get on with the job. Was there ever a moment where your life was in danger, in the sense that it was a close shave? I think there, there were a few close shaves uh, throughout the deployment. Certainly the strafe attack uh, was pretty risky. Uh, one of the pilots was shot at by a surface-to-air missile and had to uh, deploy countermeasures and watch this thing sail behind him, and luckily it didn't hit. Uh, I was locked up by a radar-guided uh, surface-to-air missile at one point, um, and I had a, a very uh, close call uh, at night with a, uh, um, a Voyager air-to-air refueling aircraft where we were both put in the same piece of sky at the same time, and I, I flew past the wingtip of this thing, missing it by inches, and had to get out of the airspace pretty quickly after that. That was retired Wing Commander Mike Sutton, and there is so much more to his story, including how he was initially rejected from the RAF and how he now flies planes as an enemy, well, sort of. And so we have put the whole of that interview online in a special edition of the SITREP podcast, and you can download it now. Well, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is with me. Uh, Michael, Mike Sutton was flying on Operation Shader in 2015. We don't hear much about it anymore, but it's still going on, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is. I mean, it's been going since uh, 2014, and it is the, it's the name that we give to the anti-ISIL operation. So it covers uh, Iraq and Syria, where Mike Sutton was operating. But also, because ISIS has moved, it also covers operations technically in Lebanon uh, or Tunisia or Libya. And in theory, it can cover army training to local forces. The, the Navy's been involved. The um, Queen Elizabeth Carrier Group contributed to Opshader when it was passing through the Mediterranean earlier this year. And the, the RAF says this is the, the most intense operation since really the Kosovo crisis in 1999. 
Now, more than 30 years since the end of Bosnia's civil war, there are serious concerns the country is on the brink of collapse again. Because of its complex ethnic makeup, Bosnia and Herzegovina have a three-way presidency. But the Serb leader, Milorad Dodik, is threatening to break away his region. There are still a few hundred EU peacekeepers in Bosnia. The current concerns are serious enough that the UK Defence Secretary has said he's open to exploring what more the UK can do in Bosnia through NATO. Maida Ruga has worked with the European Commission delegation to Bosnia. She's now a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. I asked her to explain more about the structure created for Bosnia in the 1995 peace deal. Dayton Peace Agreement created de facto almost three statelets in Bosnia. Bosnia was highly decentralized and divided between two main entities, Republika Srpska and Federation, and 10 cantons. Uh, and the central government was basically left with hardly any competencies and institutions. In 2002, there was a big push to reform and to strengthen Bosnia's central government. The government was enabled to collect its own taxes. It got uh, united defense forces, united intelligence services, and border protection. So lots of agreements were put in place uh, to kind of strengthen the monopoly over use of force and uh, sovereignty of the Bosnian state. And this is what's being challenged by Milorad Dodik today. So, so what is the crisis? Can you just explain what's happening at the moment then? What is happening at the moment is that Milorak Dodik has threatened to introduce into procedure over 100 laws, uh, which was, would withdraw Republika Srpska from all of the institutions and agreement at the central level of government, including defense forces, including tax collection, including judiciary. So if this happened practically, it would mean unraveling of Bosnia's central government. And potentially, if you see a pushback from the Federation, uh, it could mean a an armed conflict. Do you think conflict is inevitable? I don't. I don't think conflict is inevitable. I think we are currently at, we are dealing with a political crisis right now. And do you think all of this could lead to the breakup of Bosnia? Um, it could, but it doesn't have to. I think the main question is now, what sort of strategy are the United States and the European Union going to pursue to deter Dodik? It's very important to realize that the current crisis is an escalation of 15 years of a salami slicing tactics that Dodik has been pursuing to weaken the institutions of the central government. The Defence Secretary recently said um, and accepted that it is a U4 deployment in Bosnia, but he also mentioned there is a NATO deployment and that he was open to exploring what more the UK could do in that area. Is that something that should seriously be considered? Absolutely. I think that's an excellent initiative and it's very important to start that conversation already now. We have to be aware that U4, which is currently mandated with securing the safe and secure environment in Bosnia, is A, a very small and a non-threatening mission, but B, it is subject to Russia's veto yearly whenever the renewal of this U4 mission at the UN Security Council. And so what UK and the US and France as permanent members of the UN Security Council could do is really to strengthen the case for an alternative 
mission to you for through expanding the interpretation of NATO's mission as really a, necess a necessity to strengthen the troops on the ground uh, to be able to defend Bosnia should we come to the scenario of actual secession. Maida Ruga there. Professor Michael Clark, would more outside troops help or would they inflame the situation in Bosnia? Well, Bosnia is in deep trouble now, and the Russians are certainly encouraging this. Now, sending troops to Bosnia now, I don't think would help. But I think your correspondent is exactly right. The, the U4 troops, the EU troops there, are doing next to nothing, to be honest. So I think it's quite important that NATO shows it is prepared to send troops back if necessary. And so the commitment, in theory, of troops at least would show that we are serious about not allowing Bosnia to fall apart again because it would be an extremely uh, dangerous crisis if that happened and there would be a huge humanitarian uh, fallout in that case. Michael, stay with us. Now, on the 1st of August 1990, a British Airways plane left Heathrow, bound eventually for Malaysia. It never arrived. BA Flight 149 landed in Kuwait on a scheduled stopover in the early hours of the morning. But Iraqi troops had just invaded the country and were closing in on the airport. Most of the 367 passengers were held hostage as human shields against American military action. Well, this week, the UK government admitted for the first time that it could have but failed to warn the flight. However, the Foreign Secretary again denied years of claims that the flight was exploited to deliver Special Forces troops. Barry Manners was one of the passengers whose dream holiday plan ended up as four months in captivity. It was a big deal for me at 24 to be flying to Malaysia, particularly in business class. And you see people getting on and you think, oh, I wonder who, who they are and what they do. And, and you can sort of spot the families. And, and the only group that really stood out was this sort of group of, I don't know, about eight young men. And they, they reminded me of a friend of mine who used to be the head of security at the Hippodrome in London back in the 80s. They looked like they were equipped to go on a PT exercise rather than an intercontinental flight. They obviously weren't going on holiday. And they moved sort of in step with each other, if, if that makes sense. They were obviously a, a, a very cohesive group. After landing at Kuwait airport, the airport was bombed. Mirage fighter bombers came over and were dropping bombs on the taxiways and so on. So we got off the plane faster than you can say the bar is open. And just as we arrived, the airport transit hotel, three T-72 tanks came roaring across the apron. Iraqi Republican Guard, sort of a few days into it, you realise that your self-determination is slipping out of your own, out of your hands. We were then shipped up to Baghdad. Uh, my partner got out disguised as an Indian cleaner. I was put inside a hydroelectric plant. We were just sort of, how can I describe it? You know, you're locked up. You're, there's a lot of people pointing guns at you. You're told that you, if you try to leave, you'll be shot. Um, and that you're going to wait there until to make sure America, you know, quote, doesn't come to Iraq. Barry Manners, who was on flight BA149 in 1990. Well, journalist Stephen Davis published his account of this story, Operation Trojan Horse, after 15 years of research. I asked him who he believes the UK government had on the plane. Well, I know exactly who they had because I've interviewed and got sworn affidavits from uh, one of the team members on the flight, an organiser of the mission, 
a US Navy captain who had to send a helicopter to rescue one of the men from southern Kuwait who got into trouble. This was a deniable mission. A group called, what was then called the Increment, essentially a, a group of off-the-books soldiers, mostly from the SAS and SBS, who can be deployed in deniable missions. They were put on the plane at the last minute, and their task when they got to Kuwait was to scatter and keep an eye on the deployment of Iraqi forces. And after the invasion, when the plane landed in Kuwait City, Clyde Earthy the purser opened the door. There was a uniformed British officer there. He said, I want the people off in a hurry. He meant the people at the back of the plane, this team. And they all disappeared very quickly from the airport uh, and were never seen again by any of the passengers. And uh, I understand uh, very recently you've got further evidence of, of your theory of, of what you think exactly ha- happened. As you know, the uh, Foreign Secretary released a statement, a sort of uh, admission that they knew the invasion had started before the plane had landed, which blows a hole in 31 years' worth of denials. But they also released a lot of documentation uh, from the period. So I have a memo dated 24 April 2007, and I quote, It was confirmed that no serving, serving British military personnel were on board the flight. The next sentence, rather interestingly, is redacted, I would love to know what that is. But then it says, although it subsequently transpired that there might have been some defence section staff on board. Mm. Now, this is extraordinary for a number of reasons. First off, for 30 years, they have said absolutely there were no defence or military personnel on board. Secondly, it's interesting, don't you think, that this man is writing a memo 17 years later and referring to this in an offhand way um, when they have made so many official denials. I personally think the release of this document is a bit of a blunder. I don't think anybody's double-checked it. Mm. And you have spoken to many of the passengers who were held as human shields by Iraq. What effect has that had on their lives? Yeah, one of the sad aspects of the story and one that's really driven me on is that most people think nothing much happened. Whereas, in fact, these people suffered terribly. Um, There were rapes and other sexual assaults. There were mock executions. There were near starvation conditions under constant threat of being bombed by their own side, of course, when the war started. And many of them have never recovered. They've suffered psychological damage, PTSD. It's a horror story. Of course, um, the UK government insists this was simply a failure of systems to get a warning to the flight. The Foreign Secretary, who you mentioned before, Liz Truss, says the government at the time did not attempt in any way to exploit the flight by any means whatsoever. Um, How do you respond to those kind of assertions? And what do you say to people who say your theory, what you say, is, is not true, it's conspiracy? Stone cold, absolutely, based on, as I said, 16 named and unnamed sources, this actually happened. And bear in mind, you know, Clive Earthy opened the door and there was a uniformed British officer and he said, I want those people. And they were the only group on the plane never to be rounded up by the Iraqis. Even if you ignore all my reporting, you would say to yourself in 31 years of worldwide publicity, why is not a single one of those young military looking men who got on board and went to the back of the plane ever come forward?
That was investigative journalist Stephen Davis. Uh, Michael Clark, those comments by the Foreign Secretary that the government did not attempt any time in any way to exploit the flight by any means whatsoever. I mean, the problem for them is we know they never discuss special forces missions, so they can, can they ever give a convincing denial to such allegations? Uh, no, they can't. But, I mean, we all knew at the time that there was something odd about that BA Flight 149. I mean, these stories were around then. I remember them very well. And nobody could put a finger on it. But we all knew, as as did turn out to be true, that the special forces, British special forces, were involved in scud hunting. The Iraqi scud missiles, which were much feared, but the, the SAS and the SBS were uh, intent on trying to find the location of Scud missiles. That was what they were mainly doing during those months leading up to the outbreak of hostilities. And, of course, they wanted people um, in Baghdad as well. Mm, And I I understand there's a dramatisation of this story in the pipeline, so watch this space. This is Zidrev. Now, what do the footballer Marcus Rashford and chemical weapons expert Hamish de Breton Gordon have in common? According to a new book, they are both persuaders who extend Britain's global influence around the world. It's soft power. One of the authors of Britain's Persuaders, Helen Ramscar, joins us now. The other is already here, Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Helen, welcome. In the introduction, you say writing this has greatly renewed your faith in Britain and British society. Why? Well, in the first book that Michael and I co-authored, Tipping Point, Britain, Brexit and Security, in the 2020s, we were looking at the challenges likely to constrain Britain. Frankly, it was quite easy to feel quite deflated. And so in the second book, um, Britain's Persuaders, Soft Power in a Hard World, it really did give us enormous hope um, in exploring the many admired strengths um, of Britain, the coveted institutions, attractive and, and enduring qualities. Um, it was really enjoyable to be sifting through the ex- examples to decide which ones come into each chapter um, and give us hope in that um, Britain has got real strengths and the task is to play them well. And over the last few years, with political turmoil, three different prime ministers from five years, Brexit, the close run on Scottish independence, a lot of commentary said that significantly dented our global influence. Are you saying actually it hasn't been damaged? These issues per se aren't so much um, the thing that we're focusing on in terms of soft power. It's how Britain handles them. That's what really matters. That's what the outside world is looking at and seeing. And yes, these were um, major issues, but on the whole, Britain handled them relatively well. And they are rankings. We have traditionally been at the top of ranking studies. There has been a decline, but um, not one that's been dramatic or irreversible. But the key point is not so much the issues themselves, but how they're handled. Mm. Michael Clark, when we talk about soft power, the BBC World Service or the British Council are some of the classic examples cited. Can you really compare their influence with uh, named individuals like Hamish de Breton Gordon or Marcus Rashford? Yes, because they're all different. Obviously, the, the British Council, the World Service are institutions and they, they are, are funded by the government. Um, Hamish de Breton Gordon, who you've had on the programme, or Marcus Rashford, who you haven't had on the programme, um, <laughs> are, are famous names in, in their own right. Um, and they do different things. But the point is, you look at the, the English Premier League, where you know, Marcus Rashford plays for that, a third of all mankind tunes in to the English Premier League. Or if you go to go to Bangkok, to the, to the what is it, the what? Pariwas Temple. And there you will find next to the Buddha is an image of David Beckham next to the Buddha. 
And he hasn't played international football since 2009. I mean, these people are, as it were, showpieces for things that happen in Britain. That influence shows that Britain is a place that produces people like that. And that's as, as important as anything that the World Service or the, the BBC or the British Council are able to do. And Helen, is soft power actually power just because lots of people around the world know about the UK and maybe feel warmly towards us or maybe not? Does that actually help the UK get its way in the world? Yes, absolutely, because it's the power of imitation cannot be underestimated where others admire what you have. They want the systems you have. They admire the way um, the way you live, that is very hard to create that attraction, that magnetism. Um, it's one thing to coerce, but I think a lot harder to draw people towards you willingly on their part. So yes, that is powerful to me. Um, Michael, is there an argument that hard and soft power can actually work against each other? You can't be the good cop and the bad cop, and we should actually just pick one or the other? Well, that's a, a very good point, because the essence is that they shouldn't work against each other. The, 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 the philosopher's stone on this is often called smart power, which is being able to use the good and the bad cop together, hard and soft power, because most hard power is most effective when it is regarded as legitimate, when there's a moral force behind it and some persuasion. And equally, soft power, even if it's entertainment, works better when there's a bit of hard power around, i.e. economic strength or the strength of a military organisation whatever it might be. And so smart power is the ability, in a sense, to use the good cop and the bad cop together. And after all, the whole good cop, bad cop scenario is about success. And our point in the book really is that governments always tend towards the hard power end of the spectrum, because that's where all the, all the levers of power seem to be. They, they appreciate the soft power end, but they don't really understand it very well. And what we're saying is if you understood it better, you would probably use it more efficiently. Michael Clark, Helen Ramscar, thank you so much for your time and thank you to all of my guests. That is it for this week. But don't forget, if you want to hear more of Mike Sutton's story of life as a typhoon pilot in combat, you can download the extra edition of SITREP to hear that interview in full. Over the next few days, we will be combing through the details of the new plan to restructure the army. And next week, we'll talk through what it means for those who serve and their families and also whether there's anything important hiding in the small print. Until then, from me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye.